to the book of Jeremiah. And that's where we're going to be, um, Lord willing, for the next few weeks as we read through this very interesting and challenging book. So today I'm going to kind of introduce it to you and give you some things to look for as you read. And as you read through, I I pray that the the book is a a great blessing to you. The title of my message today is Courage, and I think that that will, uh, um, I I pray that it makes sense by the time we're done. Along that line, I would, uh, we just, I just finished a book. I actually bought it, and it showed up at my house, and my wife read it, (laughs) because I was busy reading something else. And I finally got to read it. It's not a very big book. Uh, it's called Letter to the American Church. And I encourage everyone who can to get it and read it. We haven't bought any yet and put them out on the table. Excuse me. We haven't bought any yet just because it's not a good time to be putting stuff out on tables. Because um, whatever we put out there, we have to move. But um, I would I would hope that everyone would take an opportunity to read it. Eric Metaxas has written several books. Um, this book is basically a call to repentance for the American church. And it's based upon his writings and understandings of his study of um, Wilberforce and Bonhoeffer. And for those of you who, you're not going to get this in public school, but Wilberforce was the driving power to have slavery abolished in England. And uh, there's an excellent movie out there, um, I can't think of the name of it right now, um, that came out several years ago that covers his life and what he went through to do that, and all the political machinations that he went through in order to make that thing happen. <clears throat> say, well, is that important? Well, it's important because slavery was wrong. Um, and, and it's also important because um, a few decades later, this country fought a civil war over slavery. And the greatest power in Europe wanted to join the war but couldn't because slavery was an issue. And had they joined the war, it would have turned out differently than it did. Sometimes we think that our actions are narrow and, and, and focused and uh, don't have the impact that they do. They may have a larger impact than we ever imagined. That's why it's important we be obedient to the Lord. Um, Bonhoeffer, of course, was uh, appalled by the treatment of the Jews by the Nazis, so much so that before the war, um, he was involved with conspirators and was arrested and was martyred by the Nazis. So, having all that as background, I encourage you, um, Letter to the American Church by Eric Metaxas. So, we'll, um, maybe we'll talk more about that some other time. Uh, Jeremiah 
We're going to begin chapter 1. I thought that was amusing. I'm I'm glad you did too. So, (laughs) The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. So the first um, three verses of this book cover the entire um, time of Jeremiah's ministry. So I want to put, first thing, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you three C's here. Uh, the first C is context, the second C is call, and the third C is challenge. So let me give you the first C here, the, the, the context. As you can see, he starts out in Jos- with Josiah and goes until captivity. And if you remember, Josiah was the good king. Josiah was the king that found the book of the law and they read the book of the law out loud and they were all broken in their spirits and they repented before God and they began to tear down the high places and restore things for for godliness. And he's the one who brought reform. In a larger contextual picture, there were world powers that were fighting uh, around about the little nation of Judah. Israel or the northern ten tribes, had already fallen to the Assyrians. Okay, not the Syrians, but the Assyrians. It had already fallen. So all that was left was Judah and Benjamin, those two tribes. Benjamin was the tribe that uh, Jeremiah was from. And they had a king, and he was a good king. And he, he sought reform, but these other nations were fighting. And so you had... Uh, Assyria, which had already conquered most of this area. You had Babylon, which was on the rise from the same basic area. If you think about that fertile crescent, that same basic area there. And and sometimes it might be good uh, if you want to look at your, you look at a map of the Old Testament, where the Old Testament, where the tribes were, you'll see some of this. And then to the south was Egypt. And these Three huge powers were vying for control, each of the other. So Babylon was rising in the east, and they were battling Assyria, and they were battling Egypt. And Egypt moved to go to battle, and Josiah, if you remember this, Josiah said, I'm going to go to battle, and he arrayed his army, and he went to battle against the Egyptians who had to come through Israel to get to where, to the enemy they wanted to fight. And in that process, Josiah went against them, against God's counsel, and he lost his life and died. His son, Jehoahaz, became king, and he was king for three months. Now, Jeremiah's prophesying all during this time. And, and after that three months was over, because of it, he was, he was taken to Egypt. 
the, the king of Egypt deposed him basically and said, you're not going to be king here anymore. Jehoiakim followed him as king and he was the fiercest enemy that Jeremiah had. Now, I'll talk more about kind of what was being prophesied here in a little bit. Uh, after a while, the Babylonians come and they capture all of Israel. They conquer it. That's when Daniel was taken to Babylon as a captive. And we read about that when we read, we read Daniel's book. Uh, so Zedekiah then becomes king after Jehoiakim. Judah falls. And then they put in place of uh, a puppet government, so to speak, a good man by the name of Jedaliah. And we've already read some of this as as we've read through the Chronicles. A good man by the name of Jedaliah, and he was righteous, but he wasn't a nationalist. He was trying to walk the line between the Babylonian overlords and the people in his country who were constantly fomenting rebellion. And they assassinated him. They killed him. And in the process of, of doing that, they brought the wrath of the Babylonians down on them. And a bunch of them fled to Egypt and they made Jeremiah go with him. And so Jeremiah and his scribe, you're going to read about Baruch in this book. Jeremiah and his scribe were taken more than likely against their will to Egypt where as best we can tell they died. So these, this faithful man who, proph- who prophesied to these kings the good king and all of the bad kings, over more than 40 years, died in exile against his will. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. So that's the context. I wanted to give you the context. Now, let's read the call. That begins in verse 4, and I'm going to read the entire first chapter. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Interesting. I want to keep reading, but I want to just bring out here that it's very possible. Bible scholars believe that when this happened and, and he got this word from God and he said he was a youth, it wasn't an excuse that he was probably still under the, the uh, guardianship of his parents at the time. It says, it says, Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I put my words in your mouth. And I have set, see, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. So he gives him both a negative message and a positive message. And he says the message is to nations. Folks, I can't, I can't stop at all of these and, and comment on all of them, but I hope you realize, and if you mark in your Bible, you might want to put some notes or stop and think or put it in your notes someplace. It is the duty of the church 
to speak truth to those in authority. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. The Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. The word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. The Lord said to me, out of the north, disaster shall be let loose upon the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come and every one shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against all its walls and around and against all the cities of Judah. And I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. But you dress yourself for works. Some of your Bibles may say, gird up your loins. Dress yourself for work. Arise and say to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. Now there's another point I want to throw in here before we go on and finish reading the rest of the couple more verses before we end this chapter. The will of God is always a double-edged axe or a double-edged sword. There is blessing in obeying it and if we don't obey it, there's a curse. There's always a negative to gain, excuse me, a positive to gain and a negative to avoid. And we see that here. He says, listen, if you... If you listen to me and do what I do, then I will strengthen you, and if not, you'll be dismayed before them. In other words, I'll pull off of you, and you'll just be by yourself. Verse 18, And behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah and its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. So there's the calling of this man. And this is the scripture that we read. And it, 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 it's okay to read it and, and say to ourselves, well, that's pretty straightforward. He's going to go out here and he's going to have enemies. But it's quite another thing when the people of your own village rise up and try to kill you, which you will read in the upcoming chapters, happens to him. When, when he has to flee. As a matter of fact, let me give you just a little bit of background of the book. The book is not chronological. The book is bits and pieces. And one of the commentators I read said, this is exactly what you would expect the book to be, the things that Baruch wrote, that Jeremiah told him to write, the things that Baruch wrote or Jeremiah wrote that were written prophecies instead of verbal, uh, the things that, that they wrote down after Jeremiah said them, they were all scattered up and scattered around and then had to be pulled together because that's exactly what you would expect from people who were refugees. These guys, for the most part, were on the run the entire ministry of Jeremiah. The only time they had a little bit of of rest and peace was under the reign of Josiah. 
And Josiah was a good man, but when Jeremiah went to him and said, don't go to battle against the Egyptians, he didn't listen. We'll talk more about that in just a second. So here we have this guy. He was young. He was probably poor. He was faced with adversity and opposition. And all of that was his calling. I am sending you to people who won't listen to you. (laughs) You know what? I wish we had people in our seminaries with that kind of calling. We don't. We have people in our seminaries that believe that if they go, people will like them. I'll maybe talk more about that in just a a bit. I'm going to read to you just a little bit. I hope you can bear with me here. Um, I hope you're not too tired from all the moving of furniture and things this morning. So it gets boring when people read. But I want to. I couldn't. I couldn't say it any better than than my notes. I want to read to you. There's a little passage here in the notes of my Bible um, about Jeremiah's difficult life. Okay, so let me talk to you for a minute about your Bible. Remember, I told you how this is this is not chronological. And there are messages at the, toward the beginning that should be at the, at the back as you, if you look at it chronologically and so on and so forth. You won't know that unless you have a decent study Bible with footnotes in it. And if you want to be a student of Scripture, get a decent study Bible. Save up and get a good one. And it will last you for a long time. Try to get a good binding on it. This is not the best binding um, I'm trying to figure out who does bookbinding. I'm going to have it redone. About the time I get the insides all figured out, the outside falls apart. But get a good study Bible with footnotes. Say, are those footnotes infallible? No. But there's more information there than you will have unless you're able to make your own footnotes, which probably none of us are. I know that I'm not. So I want to just read to you a little bit. Jeremiah's Difficult Life. Jeremiah was born and raised in Anathoth, a small town a few miles northeast of Jerusalem. He was called to be a prophet in 627 B.C., approximately, and served over 40 years. At the time of his call, he was a youth, still financially dependent on his parents, so he could have been born perhaps 645 B.C., they're they're guessing, though no certain date can be established. He became a priest and lived in the area allotted to the tribe of Benjamin. So he was possibly a descendant of Abiathar, high priest during David's reign. Solomon removed Abiathar from service because of his support of Adonijah. Thank you. Thus Jeremiah was from a small town served a small tribe, and perhaps came from a disposed priestly lineage. He lived close enough to Jerusalem to understand its people, their worship, and their daily activities. He was far enough removed from Jerusalem that he was not afraid to criticize what he saw happening there. Jeremiah had a difficult life. His his messages of repentance delivered at the temple were not well received. And there's scriptures here, I'm not going to read all those. His hometown plotted against him, and he endured much persecution in the pursuit of his ministry. At God's command, he never married. Do you know that the Hebrews have no word for bachelor? 
So God tells this guy not to marry, and because of that, he doesn't fit in any of the cultural niches of his people. That's why I entitled this Courage. A faithful preacher, he apparently had only two converts, Baruch, his scribe, and Ebed-Melech, an Ethiopian eunuch who served the king. These are the only two mentioned in the entire book who responded favorably to Jeremiah's preaching. Though the book does not reveal the time or place of Jeremiah's death, he presumably died in Egypt where he had been taken by his countrymen against his will after the fall of Jerusalem. Many authors have called Jeremiah the weeping prophet. While he does occasionally weep for Israel's condition, and this depth of concern speaks well of him, this emphasis on his weeping may mislead readers regarding his toughness. Jeremiah was determined, dedicated, long-suffering, and visionary follower of God. His courage and stamina serve as examples to even the most faithful of all God's embattled servants. The Apostle Paul certainly viewed his own ministry as being like Jeremiah's. And he references 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Thus, Jeremiah's weeping hardly summarizes his character. He could perhaps be more accurately, he could perhaps more accurately be called the preserving, the persevering prophet. The persevering prophet. So let's go down through a little bit. He was a bachelor, as I mentioned. There's no Hebrew word, so he was an outcast in his culture. Almost everyone he encountered in his ministry was an enemy. And those who were not enemies and who listened didn't obey or respond to what he told them. So he, he actually, when you get, to the end, you get to the end of this and read this, or you go back and read Chronicles and read how the end, they would, the king would call the prophet in and he'd say, what do you want, you know, what's God telling you? And he would tell him and he'd say, okay, thank you. And he'd go and he'd go, the king would go do the other thing. He wouldn't listen. So he was either um, fought against and resisted, or he, or or the people just didn't re- respond; they ignored him. I've often wondered. Um, what it would be like to be completely alone. So I know some of these things, and I hope you do too. I read this stuff, and I get on my face in thanksgiving to God that you folks show up every week. You probably hear more for one another than for me. I appreciate every week that someone prays. Um, praise that I'll say the right thing. Um, this guy went his 40 years, folks. And, they, and only a record of, we don't know, but only a record of two people who responded to his message. How do we measure success today? 
I used to teach a success motivation course. I got involved in it shortly after I got out of Bible school, and I used to teach that stuff, how to set goals, how to do planning, how to have visionary ideas, you know, the whole concept that you, whatever your vision is, that's what draws you. You have your vision, it draws to it. I quit doing it. I, I, I used to go to... Uh, so it wasn't, it wasn't hard. A lot of the concepts were, were basic and were sound. And they gave me material, and I can... Please don't... I'm not bragging, but if, if I've got an outline, I can talk about it. So it wasn't hard for me to talk about the stuff, but I, I quit doing it because it's so shallow. I had, my, I, have, I had a whole series of books on my shelves about success. And one by one, I'm throwing them away and they will all be gone except for one or two that actually deal with life principles. We don't even know what success is anymore. And actually one of those books that I won't throw away, the guy talks about the fact that a lot of people climb the ladder of success, get to the top only to find out that it's been leaning against the wrong wall. We have a church today that's drunken with, it's soaked in. I couldn't think of another way. I was trying to think of it. It's just saturated in materialism. It's sodden. We, 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 on a regular basis, in spite of what Paul tells us, on a regular basis, we count gain as godliness. We look around and we say, things are going good, therefore God must love us. And that is wrong. And, the, and one of the greatest problems is, is that because we're sinners, all of us, no one questions it. No one questions that gain might not equal godliness. That they might not be equal. And where, where God tells his prophet, he says, don't you be afraid of the people. Don't you be dismayed or puzzled or confused. What, what does that dismayed mean? It means, it means put off. It means out, out of balance. It means, it means confused. You, you lost your, your equilibrium. You're, you're, you know, he says, don't you, don't you let that happen. This, the church of today is, we're not, we're not afraid of people. We're not afraid of saying things that will offend people. As a matter of fact, we don't even think along that lines. We think about what the people want to hear and we cater to them. We tell them what they want to hear. It's a completely different level of thinking. It's one thing to be afraid that when I say this, someone's going to be irritated. It's another thing to not even think along that line and say, I'm going to say what they want to hear. We do the church, modern church does whatever culture demands. And if we try to find, the, try to find it in the Bible, and most of the time we can't, and so we make pretzels of scriptures. We just twist everything around. And when we can't even do that, we just ignore what the Bible says. We were just, I didn't get a chance to investigate it. I'd not heard of it before, but apparently there's a group of Christian atheists. I don't know. I didn't get a chance to look it up. So... As a matter of fact, it came up in a conversation a couple of days ago and I forgot about it until just now. Um, 
It's only interesting. Debbie says that's an oxymoron. It's only an oxymoron if you define those two things the way they ought to be defined. But if you redefine everything, everything is cool. That's what I say. We twist the scripture to try to find what we're going to find. And I mentioned earlier gain and godliness. You read those passages. And I, I can't go into all of that today, but we'll, we'll cover some of it bit by bit as we move through here. You read, you read that passage and you find out that Paul was talking about suffering and, and being in difficulty and it didn't matter to him. So, we twist it, and when we can't twist it, we just ignore it. That's why I wanted to, I began with this, this is a challenge, because there are those of us in this room that have friends and loved ones who need a Jeremiah to say to them, repent. Now, I'm going to give you just the highlights of the challenge. We're into the third C already. Am I doing okay? (laughs) You want me to back up and cover some more of that? I'm done. All right, so let me give you the third C, the message of the prophets. And these are just highlights, but I want to give you some things to look for as, as you read through this, all right? Number one, he chastises them for their spiritual adultery. And he uses graphic uh, portrayals of their unfaithfulness in order to bring it home to them. Now he also uh, chastises them about their physical adultery. Now let me stop and say something here as we move through here. If people abandon God, they no longer feel the need to obey God's commandments. People will always worship something. Even the person who says they're an atheist is worshiping something. And Again, it's a big topic, but they'll always worship something. And usually the something, if it's, if it's not the God, and, it's, and they don't claim some other God, then it's themselves. So it can go both ways. They can say, I don't want that God. And the reason they will abandon God usually is because they want to do something he doesn't want them to do. So physical adultery is by nature going to follow spiritual adultery. The two are connected. You say, well, what happens to the person that gets caught up in a... In the, in the, in the physical sin, well, if if if, uh, if if God touches them and they return to Him, then there can be healing and forgiveness. And that comes after repentance. That comes in saying what I did was wrong, and I wronged people, but more importantly, I wronged God. I sinned against. You read David's confession: "God, I sinned against you and you alone." He says. So, spiritual adultery. He chastises them. He chastises them for their physical adultery. He chastises them for their oppression of the poor. He says they have blood guilt. And you'll read more than one place where these things, where these things are dealt with. And once again, 
we we will have a culture of of fraud and deceit and thievery and violence etc etc when god is abandoned when the absolutes of god's truth and absolute morality is abandoned then man can do whatever man wants to do he he points a, a prophetic finger at their corrupt leaders at the at the kings who abandoned god and 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 the priests who lied for personal gain. Now again, we, we've already read through this where these prophets went and went to the king. I still remember. I, I just get a kick out of trying to, I was trying to be in the room, you know. I tried to be in the room when this false prophet came and had himself a headdress with horns made on it and put it on and just was running around and said, this is what you're going to do. And I can just imagine him running around, you know, making a big show of stuff. So that kind of stuff doesn't happen today. Yes, it does. I've been on platforms where things very similar to that have happened. Making a show of God. Saying, this is God. This is what happens. If you want specifics, come and see me. I can't deal, I can't deal with everything in one day. Corrupt leaders. Now, here's the hard part about this. You guys ready for the hard part? All this has been easy so far. You ready? I got one vote. All right. Good for him. Out of the mouths of babes. Um, He was prophesying against his nation. So I used the word carefully when I said earlier that the governor was killed by the nationalists. And it was those nationalists that took Jeremiah against his will to Egypt. Now, there's a whole cycle of confusion involved in that. But basically, he was saying to them, you guys are wrong. God's going to judge you. Repent and accept his judgment. So when the Babylonians came in and they said, we're going to go to Egypt for help, he said, don't go to Egypt for help. Depend upon God. Trust God. And they wouldn't. They said, we're not going to trust God. We're We're going to trust Egypt. Now, so on the surface, it looks like he's against his nation. But think with me for just a second. If you're one of those people who says, you know, Jeremiah, you're a traitor... We're gonna we're gonna trust we're you know on a super superficially you can say that we're gonna we're gonna ask Egypt to help us and we're gonna preserve our nation by doing that and Jeremiah says no don't trust God on on the superficial level it looks that way but if you think a little bit deeper who's the real people who are abandoning their nation it's the people who say we don't want that nation to rule us we want this nation to rule us. So we talk about corrupt leaders and we talk about the context of where he was and what was going on in his life. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to give you all that. So we just don't pull these things out. of. By the way, some of the most misquoted prophecies in all of Scripture come out of Jeremiah. So um, 
I wanted you to see that th- those leaders sometimes were corrupt because they placed their country above God. You know where the Babylonians are now? Besides being dead? You know where their nation is? It's gone. You know where the Assyrian nation is? It's gone. Now, Egypt is still a nation. It's amazing. I've had the privilege of visiting there. It's amazing to go and visit and see the mighty country they once were. And they are no longer. When you go to Egypt, you don't go to see the things that are. You go to see the things that were. And I, I, I've been, I looked at pictures just a few weeks ago. I happened to pop up some pictures of the things and, and I found out that some of that stuff that I looked at when I was there, I only saw part of it because it was buried by the sand. And now they've excavated the sand. I don't know where they put it all. But they excavated the sand away and the other things and you can see other things. And that's just like God and His patience to let the sand cover these nations. And we, we right now, we live in a tumultuous time and we've got enemies all around about us. If you're old like me, you lived, you lived under the shadow of a nuclear war. I had the privilege several years ago of going to Russia and we talked to the Russians and the people I was with who, who lived there talked to the Russians. And guess what? Um, they called themselves Russians. They didn't call themselves members of the Soviet Union because that country was gone. They didn't like it. They were Russians. And we talked to the Russians in the roundabout, the cities, the cities roundabout Moscow, and they told us they went to bed at night wondering if we were going to blow them up with nuclear bombs. All of those people are growing old and going off the scene. God's truth and reality just keeps going. We don't ever dare place our nation above God. We have to be the ones who say, here's what objective truth and reality is for all men, rulers and those ruled. We have to be able to speak truth to authority. Or someone would say, "Man, I don't know." He challenged them for their heart of hardness of heart. Have you ever wondered why our country is so politically polarized? Who's going to bend and break first and call on God? The word turn or turning and its forms are used about a hundred times in Jeremiah. Mostly where he's telling the people that's what they're supposed to do. 
Turn from your idolatry. Turn from your spiritual adultery. Turn from your physical adultery. Turn from your dependence upon other nations. Turn from your taking advantage and your oppression of the poor and the weak, etc. Now let me close with this one final part of his challenge. He was often dismayed. And when you read through this book, you'll see places where he cries out to God. Where he says, God, why did you choose me? (laughs) You say, you you know, you might say, well, that's selfish, dude. (laughs) His own town wanted to kill him. And as I mentioned earlier, one of the reasons they believe this book is piecemeal and put together the way it is is because he and his scribe Baruch were were constantly on the move to keep themselves alive. So at times he cries out to God and he complains. He says, I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand why, why me. Why don't they do what I ask them to do? Why don't they respond to you? And his tormented soul cries out to God for answers. Folks, that's the way it ought to be. If you are comfortable in this world, you've got a problem with God. His kingdom is not of this world. Guess who said that? Jesus. And when we get to the epistles of John, he spells it out even more plainly. He says, you're a friend of this world and you're an enemy of God. And if you love this world, then the love of God is not in you. If our hearts aren't broken and there isn't something on the inside of us that maybe like Lot cries out and says, God, what's going on? Why all this wickedness? Why all this evilness? Why all this confusion? Why don't people understand? And and we're, we're wrestling with those bigger questions that are out here. His tormented soul cries out to God for answers and that's the way it should be. And by the way, Jesus said something to this effect. I'm going to probably mess this up a little bit. I don't have it in my notes, so I'm going to mess this up a little bit. But he says, the world hates me. It will hate you too. So we are to be hated by this world. Heavenly Father, we live in a broken world and maybe in history it's not the case, but certainly in recent history it is the case that this is the most confusing of times with more contradiction, more conflict. Maybe it's because we have such instant communication that such vile can be spilled back and forth so easily. Maybe the spilling of it so quickly and so easily encourages others to be involved in it. Lord, forgive me. What I'm trying to communicate to you is that we need you. 
We don't have answers. We are not the answer. You are the answer. Your son is the answer. Your son is the source. And when our hearts cry out because of the evil and the injustice that we see around about us, remind us that that's the way it should be. And Lord, prevent us from being involved in it, though it cost us everything. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.